Lauren Olamina is a black girl, 14 years old, when Parable of the Sower begins. She lives in a cul-de-sac with her family and 10 other households who form a mostly self-dependent community. Several community members, including Lauren's father, work outside, but most of her neighbors don't have jobs. They spend their days growing food, teaching children, and working together to keep the neighborhood together and safe. Lauren lives with her dad and her stepmom and four younger brothers, but many of her neighbors live in multi-generational households with several families to a house that was built for one. They're poor. A few of her neighbors are too old to contribute to the community and a few are too dysfunctional. Not everyone has adapted to life within the nine foot razor wire topped wall around the neighborhood. Where to go outside is to risk your life. Outside is chaos, where everyone has to fight to survive every day. All infrastructure has been abandoned, buildings that aren't enclosed in walls are destroyed, and violence between humans is the norm. The only times Lauren goes out is with her dad to a nearby canyon for target practice, and they go with a group because there is safety in numbers. The year is 2024, and the tipping point in the world has been reached and passed. A combination of climate change, the cultures of individualism and white supremacy, and the corruption of government and business in the name of power for the few, on top have destroyed the civilization that we in our current reality know. The adults in the book grew up in the time before, and many hope that there will be a return to what they call better days. At the very least, they believe they need to stay in their community where they can be safe. Lauren's father is sure that better days won't happen, that the spiral will continue to turn downward for people who don't have access to power, which is almost everyone. But as the neighborhood's minister, he plays the role of offering spiritual support as they try to survive in the world that is. Lauren is different. She has grown up in this world where you can see the brilliance of the night sky because there are no electric lights. Where having to guard against fear and violence is the norm. Where literal everyday interdependence gives you a much better chance at survival. And where all of this is the result of our history of colonialism and oppression and every man for himself. Lauren has something called hyperempathy syndrome, where she feels the pain of others involuntarily and always, which is the result of a, of a drug that her birth mom took to escape the pain of this new world. Lauren has come to understand the difference between simple survival and thriving. And she's coming to realize that she's being called to create a new way, a way that is not the way of complacency in her community, a way which will require that she leave that community. And so she begins slowly over the first few years the book covers to, to prepare for leaving. And she will leave when she is 18. That call comes from her growing realization that the God of her father 
a Baptist doesn't exist and that there is a different theology, a new one, a new understanding of God being born through her, a theology that resonates with her time and her experience. That theology centers on the reality of change. The only lasting truth is change and God is change. There is so much I could and want to talk about in this book, which has become one of my primary sources of wisdom and spirit. So much happens in this world that Octavia Butler created or foresaw back in 1993. And to Lauren, that is a deep and so very true study of humanity and faith on which I could create a year of reflections. But today, I'm going to focus on the simple theology that God is change. There's a name for this idea that is kind of, that this idea is kind of contained within. It's called process theology, and it's built out of the understanding that the only lasting truth is change. We know this idea, right? No person steps in the same river twice because it's never the same river, and we're never the same person as we were before. It's underscored by our understanding of the interconnected web of which we're all a part. Not only are we changing all the time, but if we're in relationship with each other, interconnected, then of course we're also changing each other all the time. And as we change, as we become something new, we are no longer what we once were. And so there is loss. I remember a time, maybe two years ago, when I was working through the grief of losing my partner in divorce, when I realized that it was actually quite valid to use the language that I'm finding myself. Here I was in my mid-50s. I should already have found myself long ago, right? What I learned in that time was that I was finding a new version of myself a version that was being born out of my loss and my changed state of being. I was grieving not only the loss of my partner, but the loss of who I had been when we were together, who I had become out of the 20 years of our relationship. What I understand now is that the grieving process is mostly behind me is that I needed to learn who I am now because I'm not the same person and because this is an ongoing process. The loss and the grief had shaped me into something new, and my experiences since then are all still shaping me. As Octavia wrote through Lauren, hidden within change is surprise, delight, confusion, pain, discovery, loss, opportunity, and growth. And it never ends. So when we take this concept of change and apply it to an understanding of God or the universe or spirit or that which is larger than each of us, we can start to grapple with the theological idea that God exists to shape and to be shaped. I invite all of us who have trouble with God language to translate that to whatever makes sense for you for this part. So as I'm shaped by my experience, I make change in who and what is around me by interacting with it. 
I call God the energy that moves within and between us, which makes itself known and felt when we're intentionally shaping our relationship. And so between us, we shape that energy. You could say, if you use that language, we shape God. We change through our relationships and we change that which is larger than ourselves as that happens. Our interconnection is spiritual, not just physiological. Where this becomes important for me is where it's applied. We have choices when change happens around us, even when that change causes us to suffer or to fear. We can go numb or become hard-hearted. We might lose hope or or imagine that the suffering is all that there is. We can push the pain to the background, compartmentalize it so we can continue to function. And we can respond with what the process thinker Alfred North Whitehead called adventure, or choose to embrace change despite risk and discomfort. Or as Lauren might say, we can try to push through the pain and try to heed the call of God. All these responses to change and suffering and the suffering it can cause, they're all very natural ways to feel. And they're sometimes necessary for our survival. Sometimes we have to numb. Sometimes we have to push the pain aside. Sometimes we lose hope. But here's the thing Lauren is teaching me. Well, Lauren and classes on process theology, it's not in our individual or collective best interest to live in those first three responses. They're survival strategies. They get us through hard times, but we don't want to just survive. We want to thrive. And that requires us to embrace change, to shape ourselves and that which is larger than us. This is true healing for ourselves. It is often done only in community and it promotes healing for our communities and the world. Octavia also wrote through Lauren, kindness eases change, love quiets fear, and a sweet and powerful positive obsession blunts pain, diverts rage, and engages each of us in the greatest, most intense of our chosen struggles. We can help each other find ease as change happens within and between us by offering ourselves and each other compassion and direction. This is important as we shift from the idea of personal change to collective change, because suffering isn't just an individual thing, right? We live within collective systemic structures built and maintained to create ease for some at the cost of suffering of many of our siblings. If we are to replace them with systems that center love over fear, equity over oppression and marginalization, worth and dignity of all over white supremacy and patriarchy, then we need to embrace ease with change, this adventure of shaping ourselves, each other, and God 
together. And that begins, I think, I think I have learned with learning to embrace it during our own difficult changes. This can help us be people of healing. May it be so. And may we be so.